and uh, he is writing to Christians who are struggling with trouble and division in the church and also confusion in the culture. It's very much like uh, our own situation. And uh, in his letter, he mentions a great deal the idea of love. And it's really interesting comparing the letter with the gospel. And we're going to read part of the gospel to start with. I'm going to ask Sheena to come up and read uh, John chapter 14. It's on page 1082. And we'll read the whole chapter, John chapter 14, and then we'll continue our studies in First John. John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Before the long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Let's turn to 1 John, which is later on in the New Testament. Page 1224. And let's read from verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we look at your word and that it would be a living word speaking to us, going right into the very core of our being, drawing us to you and enabling us to seek your forgiveness and your grace. In your name, amen. I want to tell you about a scandal that could destroy the church. 
It's not the scandal that's recently engulfed the Roman Catholic Church in Germany, again, of child sexual abuse, and it could, that would do it enormous harm. It's not the kind of scandal that you, will, you would hear about. If I stood up and announced I was going to confess to a scandal, some of you would be thinking, it's, you know, the kind of news, inverted commas, that you get in the news of the world, you know, minister runs off with organist wife or whatever, that kind of thing. I'm not about to stand up and confess anything like that. That's not the scandal that we are faced with. It's a word that is used in this passage at the end of verse 10, where he says, whoever lives, loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. And the word for stumble is scandalon. There is nothing scandalous. Now, I think that we are, what we look at this, this morning is actually a far greater scandal than what's facing, say, the, the Roman Catholic Church in Germany. And bear with me and you'll, you'll see why. Now, last week we looked at the, the few verses before where John is asking, how do we know we are Christians? How do we know we know? We saw that he says basically it's obedience. We know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. And we saw that obedience to Christ's command and walking as Jesus walked was the big sign. Now, despite me saying that it, that wasn't the case, and despite me warning you that this did sound like it was legalism, I know that there were still people who thought, and I'm very thankful that you spoke to me as well, who thought, that does sound hard. It does, it, it does, it sounds legalistic. And Today's, it sounds nice. It's love. It's all about love. It's all Mother's Day, and it's about love, and daffodils, and hearts, and we all feel nice. Except, the problem with that is this. The command that we have to obey, to obey is the command to love. And actually, the command to love is the most difficult command of all. In fact, one commentator even goes so far, he doesn't like uh, this book, um, I would say he's not a Christian. He says, John is incredibly unloving to command people to love, which I thought uh, is a rather perverted and, and twisted way of thinking on it. John himself speaks to the Christians as loved ones. Verse 7, dear friends, loved ones, agapetos. That itself is interesting too, because if you know the history of John, when he was a young man, he and his brother were called by Jesus Boanerges, which means sons of thunder because they were walking along and some people in the village rejected them or rejected Jesus. And John said, shall we call down thunder and lightning on this village to destroy it? By the time we get to the stage where John is writing this letter, he is known as the apostle of love. And here he's saying, okay, how do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that you know? You know because of love. Now, how this applies to you and how this applies to me is, is very straightforward. We have to think about it ourselves as the church. We also, maybe if you're not a Christian, you need to think about what this, this love involves, and we're going to have to try and define to some degree what love is. So first of all, let's look at the old command, says he, if I've got it up here. Uh, is that thing working? Yeah, there it is. Whoops, gone too far now. We'll come to you in a minute. The old command. The old command, he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since 
the beginning. And you find that in, for example, in Matthew's gospel. Now, he says since the beginning, he's talking about the beginning of the Christian church, and he's saying this was right from the beginning. Matthew 22 and at verse 37, we read this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Citing Jesus' citing, of course, the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 5. The idea of law in Latin is rex. It's, it's, uh, it's very systematic. In Hebrew, it was Torah, and it is a kind of more relational aspect rather than judicial aspect. And here, the teaching of the Bible is very clear that there is a law that God gives that we are to love. And that law of love is to be lived out in Jesus Christ. But we have to stop and we have to ask, okay, what's love? How do you define what love is? In, in, sometimes people will say, you know, you say something, that's not very loving. Uh, I, some of you know I do occasional debates on premier radio and so on, and someone actually wrote in a comment and said, I don't think David Robertson is very loving. Um, it wasn't Annabelle, no. <laughs> it, was, it was someone wrote in to say, I don't think he's very loving because he keeps disagreeing with the atheists. And I'm going, well, yeah, that's the point. That's why I'm there. And I disagree with them because they're wrong. And it would be unloving not to. But we, we have this kind of notion of love that's very ethereal. Love is not about tolerance of falsehood. It's not about emotion or lack of emotion. It's not, well, the way, how would we describe it? I, I know many of you are probably not neighbors aficionados, but the television program Neighbors, for those of you who are, and I will confess to occasionally taking a glance uh, at Neighbors. In Neighbors, a while ago, there was a Korean girl called Sunny, and she was in love with uh, one of the guys, uh, or she thought she was. Uh, it's moved on three weeks now, so she's gone. But um, she said this, love is not about thinking, it's about feeling, and I feel it in here. And I thought, that's just a great picture of what our society thinks love is. Love is not about thinking, it's about feeling, and I feel it in here. It's, who was it? Was it... Um, wet, 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 or whatever, you know, love is all around, I feel it in my fingers, I feel it in my toes, you know, love is all around, or um, John Paul, whatever his name was, love is in the air, John, John, John Paul Young, love is in the air, and every sight and every sound, if you go to Tanadice, they used to play that, I have no idea why Dundee United took that as their theme song, um, you could feel the love in the stands, but it's, it's just, it, you, love is, 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 a, is a feeling that we have, but the Bible doesn't accept that. It certainly involves feelings, but it's not a matter of temperament. And I was trying to think, how would you define this? And there are two ways that I want to. The first is very simple. John says, he defines it for us. Later on, he says, God is love. And the best way to see what that love is, is to see it expressed within the Trinity. Sometimes people get very, very confused about the Trinity, the three in one, how can the one be three, and so on. But part of the reason that there is a trinity is because the def how could God be love if there was no one to love? 
The fact that God exists in Trinity before anything was created, yet He was love. He was love before there were human beings to love. And that's seen in the teaching especially that John gives in his gospel. John chapter 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hand. John 14, 31, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what He has commanded me. The glory you have given me, John 17, 24, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Isn't it strange? We, we do, this is how the perverse way that our mind works. We take how we feel love, we take our definition of love, and then we judge God by it and say, well, God, that's not very loving, or God, that's not very fair. But God is justice, and God is love. And if we want to know what love is, then we need to look at God, at who He is, and what He has done in Christ, and so on. That's one way to understand what love is. The other is uh, as expressed in 1 Corinthians 13, which we will read in a moment, where it's a, a definition of the Greek word agape, of self-giving love. It's not um, eros, which is basically sexual attraction, or Philadelphia, which is friendship being, uh, or phileo, from which you get Philadelphia and so on, which is friendship. It's not storgos, which has uh, this kind of familial idea. It is agape, which is self-giving, sacrifice, commitment. So, you don't really agape strawberry ice cream but you do agape other people and God, and God is agape. So, right from the beginning, this was the old command that John says, look, this is not something new I'm teaching you. This is something that you heard from the moment you heard the gospel. This is actually the message of the gospel that God is love, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. This is the love of God, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son as the propitiation uh, for our sins, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. But he then goes on in verse 8 to almost contradict that, where he says, I'm not writing you a new command. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. And this is where there is a change. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How is the Christian message, how is the message that Christ brings also new? Well, in two ways. First, what happens when Christ comes is something different and something fresh. The Beatles sang, all you need is love, but the problem was they, they were not really able to define nor even to give it. But we sing, love came down at Christmas. When we say that, look at the difference that Jesus Christ made, what we're saying is this. We're saying that the possibility of love is not just a utopian dream or just a song. You're not a teenage guy sitting around with a guitar making up songs about a love that you were never really going to have. You're not someone wistfully gazing out over the River Tay, staring at a Valentine's card. You're not someone who goes through their whole life longing for love. What we're being told is that actually love has come, 
and love is possible. Calvin puts it this way. He says new because God, as it were, renews it by daily suggesting it so that the faithful may practice it through their whole life for nothing more excellent can be sought for by them. Now, the important thing about that is, is saying the command to love is always fresh. The command to love is always new. The command to love is always a challenge. The command to love is always dynamic. In a sense, it's always new. There's a new thing that you will receive every single day as a Christian, and that is love and the command to love. Every day, we should approach the law of love as if, it were, as if we were hearing it for the first time. And the reason for that is it is so radical and it is so counterintuitive. We love ourselves, we love things around us, but the command to love in the way that Christ fulfilled that love is something that is absolutely mind-boggling. Now, verse 8 makes it even more astonishing because he says, uh, I'm writing you a new command, its truth is seen in him. The new command, the truth is seen in Jesus Christ. But there are two words that are added to that that should cause you to stop and to think. And the two words are this, and you. The truth is seen in Jesus Christ and you. We are saying the greatest love the world has ever known or could ever know is seen in Jesus Christ. But people will say, I don't see Jesus Christ. But John says, it's seen in you. If you are a Christian, the command is to love one another as Christ has loved us so that people would know. The and you, it's now seen in you. An, an old Scottish minister, old free church minister called Candlish, R.S. Candlish in the 19th century, said that doctrinal Christianity is old, experimental Christianity is always new. And what he meant by that was simply this. The doctrines that you get, you, you, you know them, you're taught them, you remember them, but the application of them to your lives, and in particular, this command to love, it is always new. It is always fresh. You are never made perfect in love until you get to heaven. You're, you're constantly seeking to be somebody who, who loves and who knows more. So, in that sense, it's a new commandment. So, you came into church this morning. You've got to love one another. Most of you who are Christians say, yeah, I know that. It's an old command. God says, you know it. It is an old command. You're right. And it's very heart of the gospel. It's the very essence of the gospel. It's the very center of the gospel. But it's also a new command, and it's a new command for you today because you're nowhere near fulfilling it. Because if people want to see the love of Jesus Christ, they're not going to see it in a movie about Jesus Christ. They're going to see it in you and in me. And that's why then it's so important. If we claim to know him, we must obey his commands. What is his command? His command is to love one another. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We have to walk in love. Now, John then goes on to contrast that with what happens if we don't, which is the darkness of hatred. Verses 9 and verse 11. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And then verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Chapter 3 and verse 15, <clears throat> anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And chapter 4 and verse 20, 
If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Those are incredibly powerful words. Hatred puts us on the wrong track. Hatred is to walk in darkness and to stumble in the blindness. Darkness is sinful behavior. If you walk in the realm of darkness, you don't know where you're going. You're confused. You're lost. And he's writing to Christians. Now, John is writing about something that was real. Hatred was in danger of destroying the church. And if you're like me, your immediate reaction when you read that is to say, oh, that's okay. He's writing about other people because it's not me, because I don't really hate anybody. You know, okay, there are some people who really annoy me. There are some people who I don't really like. Um, there are people who, who have upset me about different things, and I remember what they did 10 years ago, and it's still sticking in my throat whenever I remember about it. But I don't hate anybody, because your image of hatred is of somebody who's so full of anger that they could murder someone. And you're saying, well, I don't feel like that about anyone. Live and let live. You know, they're horrible people. That's okay. I don't hate them. But there is a problem with that. And the problem comes out of the definition of what love is. If love and hatred are being put as opposites, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 8. I put it up on the screen there as well, but if you want to turn it up, you can find it on uh, page 1154. And especially from verse 4, the definition of love, according to Paul, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now retranslate that and put the opposite, hatred. Hatred is impatient, hatred is cruel, hatred envies, hatred boasts, hatred is proud, hatred is rude, hatred is self-seeking, hatred is easily angered, hatred keeps a record of wrongs. Hatred delights in evil, but hates the truth. Hatred never protects, never trusts, never hopes, never perseveres. And then you've got a much better definition of what hatred is. And then at that point, you and I are in trouble. Because when you turn around and say, I don't hate people, but hey, I get angry and my, my anger, well, it's a temperamental thing, come on, live with it. Or I'm such an impatient person. Or I get so frustrated with people. What you're really saying, according to the definition that the Bible gives, is that you hate because hatred isn't just an emotion. It's like love. We think hatred is when you're burning up with this, oh, I just, oh, I could wring their necks, whatever. Hatred is, if you, you can't on the one hand say, oh, I love the idea of love and I love the idea of, of God giving us and his love and I love all this deep teaching about love and the depth of it and so on, but hatred's just a feeling. No, it's not. Hatred is the polar opposite of what we are told. And when I read 1 Corinthians 13, it, for me, is one of the most uncomfortable passages in the whole Bible because it sets a standard and a challenge which is way beyond what I can personally attain to. When we isolate ourselves from others, when we buy into the selfish, consumerist individualism of our culture, we are hating. When we seal ourselves off from others, we hate. Again, candlish. A selfish religion is sure to become either morbid or stupid. It is by sympathy and brotherhood that the fire of personal Christianity is flamed. So when you get a Christian who lives in isolation in their own home with their own family but doesn't connect with other Christians and they, they can rabbit on all they want about doctrine and truth and love and protecting their family and all that kind of stuff, but if, if they are not 
loving, actively involved with other people, then they're hating. And that's a horrendous position to be in. A lack of love in that sense causes us to go blind. We begin to feel at home in the darkness. We get used to groping through life. We, we ignore the conscience. Our conscience is soon, is soon silenced. And that's where the scandal becomes. The lack of love in the church is the scandal that causes people not to believe. John 13, we read verse 34. This is what verse 35 says. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, there's a promise from the Scriptures. How will your neighbor know? How will your workmate know? How will the people in this street know? How will the people of Scotland and beyond know that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ? They will all know if we fulfill this command to love. It is the most powerful witness. It is the most effective witness. It is the most God-glorifying witness. And the scandal in the Christian church and the scandal in the church in Scotland, the scandal in the free church, the scandal in this church is when we do not love. It is not when someone commits sexual adultery, scandalous as though that is. It is not when children go off the rails and so on. Maybe that might be scandalous as well. There are a whole range of different things that we would consider to be scandalous that we wouldn't want people to know, but this one we turn a blind eye to, perhaps because we're blind. And this scandal destroys the church because the church is about relationships. People who, and it destroys your faith, because people who do not love one another inevitably make mistakes in the spiritual realm. If we are full of animosity, we become very confused, hatred distorts everything, we cannot worship and serve the triune God who is love when we ourselves do not love. No matter what your doctrine, no matter what your standing in the church, it really, it's, it, it's, that is all irrelevant in comparison with this. Hatred distorts everything. And when that hatred sinks in, when a person is in spiritual darkness, life becomes meaningless and goals are without purpose. And that's the scandal that you and I face. We've bought in to the world's definition of love. We've bought in to the world's definition of hatred. We, in our arrogance, dare to think we can judge God. That wasn't very loving, was it? What was all of those commands about the Amalekites? What's this about? That's not very loving. That's not very loving. That's not very loving. And God gives us a standard of love, and he says, I want you to show people that I am love. And I want you, as my people, to demonstrate the love, the love, the glory, the peace. You read John 15, John 16, John 17, and you'll see again and again that what Jesus is saying is, what is between me and you? He's praying to the Father. What is between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit? Let that be between me, you, and those who are my people. And what hatred does is it negates that, it destroys that, it ruins that witness. And so I think the challenge for those of us who are Christians is to ask the Lord to show us, Lord, where am I behaving as somebody who's hateful? In the, in the standard of your word, 
Why am I so detached? Why am I so protective about myself? Where's this love that I'm supposed to have? Because verse 10 then goes, I'm just going back to that, talks about the, the consequences of that. And I've got a quote up there that I'll read to you in a moment from C.S. Lewis. But verse 10 says, to live in love is to live in light. It's to walk in the light. And earlier in the chapter, he's saying Christians are to walk in the light. Love and light go together. And here's the astonishing thing. Hatred and love are not equal and polar opposites. Remember, we, we saw that this, the, the light and darkness was not equal and polar opposites as well. The light dispels the darkness. If you've got darkness and light, immediately the light wins. Because the light dispels the darkness. The darkness never overcomes the light. It can't. The darkness cannot overcome the light. When you've got love and hatred, hatred never wins because the love always defeats the hatred. But the trouble with what we do is somebody hates us using the definition that I've used. Someone is impatient with us. Someone is angry with us. Someone despises us. Immediately, our response is to be angry with them is to despise them, is to feel hurt by them. And what you've got is you've got two hatreds, and what do those two hatreds do? They feed each other. Whereas on the one hand, you have this hatred, but because you have the love of Christ, you love the person who hates you, you're patient with the person who's impatient with you, you're you're gentle with the person who is angry with you, you are kind to the person who is cruel to you. The love overcomes the hatred. The light overcomes the darkness. It's why that um, you return that again to the whole idea of the love of the Trinity and what's involved in that. I'm talking here particularly about the relationships we have within the church. Nothing destroys a church more than hatred and hatred between believers. That's why Jesus says the one reason you should not take communion, and he's talking about going to the altar, and I'm certain that that's speaking about communion. He says, you don't go to that altar if you've got hatred against your brother until you get that sorted. It's one thing that would stop you. If you were a Christian and you, were, you believe in Jesus and you trust in Jesus, but you have hatred against your, your brother or your sister, you have to deal with that. Now, It's not asking perfection. It's not asking that you never have anything against and all that kind of stuff. But it's just simply stating hatred, bitterness, it's not an option for the believer. And if you think it is an option, as we go on through John, you will discover that John turns around and he says something that's incredibly harsh. If you think that's an option, you're not a Christian. No matter what you profess, it's not an option for the believer. It's like someone getting married and saying, well, I'm committed to you but I've always got the option of getting out of it. No, that's not a marriage. The Christian is someone who doesn't have the option to hate. Now, that's within the fellowship. I think um, the quote there from C.S. Lewis is, for me, an extraordinary quote and very helpful. It's from his book or his essay, The Weight of Glory. And I think that I found this really helpful. Maybe you will. There are no ordinary people you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. 
But our merriment must be of the kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love. He's using charity in the old sense of the word love. Our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love with sinners. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy, parodies merriment. Our charity must be real and costly love. Our love must be real and costly love. It's not, it, it's not real love to say to somebody, oh, well, you sinned, I don't care. Yeah, we care, but it's real and costly. And we walk in that light. To live in God is to live in light. To live in light is to walk in love. Now, if you are not a Christian, I want to argue you can feel and experience love, but you can't live like this. It's impossible. Without Jesus, it was impossible before Christ. It's impossible. You can't do it. If you are a Christian, I want you to get away from the excuse which says, I can't do it. It's impossible. You are a Christian. You are a follower of Christ. And the one obligation you have more than any other, the one thing that really matters is, is to live lives which are lives of love. See how these Christians love one another. I, it's almost impossible for me just to stress how vital that is. And you think that's it? You will go on the rest of your life working out what that means. Every day, that command will be fresh and will be new. And every day, it should stun you with its depth, with its wonder, with its possibility. How can I love? Because God is at work in me, because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And therefore, I can love and give myself to others. And the uh, I'm not going to go into all the practical implications, but there are many of them. But to put it at a most basic level, it means you see someone who's in need. They're doing dishes at the coffee bar or whatever, and they're all there by themselves. You love them. You go and do it. You're giving up your time. So what? It doesn't matter. It's a little thing like that. Or someone who's sick, really, really sick and dying, and you have to spend months with them, months going out of your life. So what? You love them. Makes a big, big big difference in every single way. May God grant that we would know and experience that love. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us and help us to apply it in our own lives. Help us to understand and help us to be those who would love. For we ask it in your name. Amen.